Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Beer Ladies podcast with your hosts, Lisa, Katie, Christina, and myself, Tandy. You can find us at our website or all over social media. Our website is beerladiespodcast.com. And our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Blue Sky, TikTok, and even Facebook are at Beer Ladies Pod or Beer Ladies Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can find our merch store link uh, on any of our social media bios uh, or in the show notes for this episode. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode, do mail us at beerladiespodcast at gmail.com. Now back to the beer. Hello and welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I am Lisa and I am your host today, although I am joined by co-host Christina. Hello, Christina. And she's saying hello. She's saying hello. She's she's waving. Uh, but we are very excited because we are doing another one of our beer history interviews. And this this one really crosses styles and history. We're, we're very excited about this. But we are thrilled to welcome Lars Marius Garsul. Hopefully I said it pretty well. So hello, it Lars. Was, it was pretty well. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, before we dive into today's topic, we want to do our sort of usual going around the horn and find out what people are drinking. And I know I'll start with you, Christina, because I know you're not on, you're not on the sauce tonight, but. No, I'm sorry. You're all going to have to bear with me. I have a bit of a cough, <laughs> but I once again have my skull mug with my uh, lovely berries tea. Yay. <laughs> We we all love this skull mug. It's been on our socials. People have seen it. It's 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 almost got its own fan club. So it's uh, it's good to see it again. Wonderful. And and Lars, how about yourself? What have you brought for us today? Yeah, I'm drinking um, farmhouse ale. Oh gosh, and is is that out of uh, a wooden uh, top as well? A oh, wooden bowl, yeah. A wooden like, bowl. Oh, it's not. Um... This one is not really traditional. It's too small and it's not painted. I have a, <laughs> I only thought of that now. I have a real one in the next room. Oh, wow. Oh, well, we, we can definitely put up some photos later if you've got some. So we'll, we'll yeah. definitely dive into that a bit more. Oh, so this that's is wonderful. the beer. It's um, corner, let's the style. It's a raw ale with, with crack. Oh, and wonderful. Juniper, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and juniper of course yes and it's got a beautiful can there too we'll we'll try to put some pictures up it's a red can with some lovely gold lettering on it so we will we will come back to that uh and for myself we we don't really have a lot of norwegian farmhouse ales here in ireland i know that's that's going to shock people so i do have a ballykilcavan clancy's cans number 12 it's their ipa so Obviously nothing at all related style with, but it is made there on the farm at Belly Kill Cavern. So I, I've done my best to get a little tie in there. So, um, and this is a lovely beer. I've, I've had it quite a few times before. It's part of their sort of uh, one-off series. Um, and you know, this one's a very nice IPA, 5.5%. Uh, and it's it's been a lovely one. So excited about that. So that's our usual formalities out of the way. So again, welcome Lars. And I wonder if you could Give us a quick introduction, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, maybe what you've been doing with beer history. But before we get into that, we think we want to know about you, and we want to know about Norwegian farmhouse ales because I know there's there's a lot that can be said there. But we'll start with you. So tell us about yourself and how you got into beer history. Uh, okay, so um, I started as somebody who was just interested in beer, like tasting different beers, trying them out. Uh, I used Wraith beer before Untapped was a thing. Right. Um, really explored the globe, all of the styles. 
And then I came across uh, Norwegian Farmhouse Ale, which nobody really knew about. Like mm. people who were who were knowledgeable had some idea that there was something there, but they nobody really know, knew what it was. Um, and I got super interested in trying to understand what it was because it tasted so completely alien. Right. It, it didn't taste like modern beer at all. Uh, and, and it was really digging into that where I started seeing that, okay, so people are making it in this county and this other county on the on the opposite side of the country, they're also making it, but it's completely different. Mm. And then you have to try and work, okay, well, what is it? Where does it come from? And and that sort of led me to understand that it was farmhouse ale and that basically people made it all over the country originally, like literally everywhere. Um, right. I'm on the edge of Oslo, the local history museum here, which is really just a volunteer thing. Mm. But, uh, they have a farmhouse brewing vessel from 1840 standing there. So like any anywhere you see a farm, they will have brewed. Uh, but so how did I become or get into history? So when I got interested in this, the starting point was was the brewing that was happening now, mm. because that was something that you could you could travel to see, you could understand what they were doing, you could taste the beer. Uh, but it was really trying to uh, trying to understand how does that fit into the larger beer, beer world that forced me to go backwards. Right. Because because you see yeah, people yeah. doing things that uh, don't make any sense. They're completely different <laughs> from what everyone else is doing. So you have to try and go backwards to to try and see where does it where does it branch off from the brewing that we know. It's, mm. it's kind of, and then I discovered that actually learning about you know brewing in Mesopotamia or whatever you like actually helped me understand it. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. So so but my but my um you know. Uh, Brewer's Publications published this book. Oh, historical wonderful. brewing techniques. I have a copy. The lost of farmhouse brewing. But uh, the point of the book is that it's not lost and it's not historical. It's here right. now. <laughs> so it's a bit of a misnomer. Lots of myths to bust. Uh, yeah, uh, two misnomers in in one title. So that's pretty good. <laughs> I don't, Christina. I think you're 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 not at that level yet with your book coming out soon. Coming out soon. But uh, I know the struggle is always real to land on a title that everyone's happy with so <laughs> yeah yeah long story yes it always <laughs> is <laughs> and and to dive in a little bit more to those different those different styles and, and like you say kind of everyone was making them but it looks like there are a couple different maybe sort of broad categories talking about the historical ones first but what is that is that just I guess so that sort of mapping if you like still hold true or I think are these categories sort of malleable if you like uh well they were very malleable because uh, you know everyone brewed the way that they learned from their parents maybe mm. with a couple of modifications and and so on you know back into prehistory effectively right. so there was absolutely no standardization of any kind uh, but today uh the brewing has been through sort of evolutionary bottlenecks where they were down to very uh, few brewers, right? Right. So it's, I wouldn't say it's standardized, but we have like three fairly clear styles. Okay. That are recognizable uh, and in, in the Western Norway and in Central Norway. And then in the East, there's people who brew stuff that's outside of those categories, but they are so few that it's, you know, if you have a single brewer, you can't really talk about the style. Right. It's just what they make okay. up that particular farm. Or yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of the state of things. Oh, gosh, that's that's interesting. And Christina, I don't know if you have a, a question to, to bring in here, but I think it's it's so interesting that, like you say, this is, you know, th these are kind of the historical things, but they, they haven't gone away. They're still around. So I wonder if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. Or I don't know if, Christina, if you want to delve into oh, that I, a bit. Yeah, I was just going to ask sort of how, you, you know, we, we introduced the book. If you could talk a little bit about how the book came about a little bit more oh, great, great um, out. Yeah. for our audience, if they're not familiar with the book, um, what it's about. I mean, we've kind of touched on that, but just a little bit more, just a little bit more. More on the book first. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the book is kind of my attempt to explain 
to people who know brewing, really know how to brew, uh, what is farmhouse ale? What is it like? How is it made? What does it taste like? What are the different ways of making it? And and why was it made the way that it was? Mm -hmm. uh, because if you don't know the background, a lot of the stuff that you read in here is going to be, ha ha, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever <laughs> do that. Right. Uh, but but if you get the context, then it makes a lot more sense, and it and it comes mm -hmm. alive in a different way. So the book also tries to, uh, you know, it explains about these. Uh, oh, wonderful. It, it, it goes into you know what were the occasions that they brewed for who was doing the brewing in, in on the farm so it, it tries to go into more of the background as well and try and set the scene a little bit um the way that it came about was well you know i did all this research i had to tell somebody <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, uh i started doing or started planning this book and then stan hieronymus put me in touch with uh, christy switzer the editor at uh, Brewers Publications. And when I sent her the uh, the kind of outline and beginning text that I had, she was like, nobody's ever heard of this stuff before. We're taking your book. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I love that no one knows about it is a good thing because I know sometimes it can be a bad thing depending on the uh, the publisher, but that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that struck her, as I recall, was uh, I had a photo that I got from the Estonian National Museum of Somebody who was not just brewing stone beer, they were um, they were sprinkling rye flour onto the stones before putting them in the mash. Oh, interesting. I've, I've seen videos of that on yeah. YouTube and, and uh, the, the rye flour catches fire. It looks, it looks like, almost like you're pouring gasoline on the thing. Yeah, we'll have to try to put some links in the show notes because I remember seeing that as, as well. And I, I feel like there was a, a trend in, well, trend may be overstating it, but I feel like there was a, a, a moment maybe in kind of the the mid to late 2000s where people, at least in, in North America, I don't know if it was the same in Europe, were sort of discovering, and I'm putting that in air quotes, things like sati and things that are sort of related, although maybe not quite the same. And I feel like there was a lot to do with throwing stones into hot water and seeing where that led. And I wonder how how much of that is sort of meaningful like in the case you described versus kind of a maybe a bit of showmanship i, I don't know <laughs> uh well uh, stone brewing definitely was uh a farmhouse brewing technique mm, uh, yeah it was used in or i have evidence of it from pretty much all of the countries that i've studied that's great um and you know the um the stein beer the the, mm. the, the commercial style that was famous uh, that was also definitely a farmhouse ale. Oh, when, you, okay. when you see, you see the equipment, the ingredients, uh, the malting equipment. It's like it's straight out of it's straight out of my book almost. Um, <laughs> they were they were even using juniper in in Steinbeer. Okay, we'll we'll definitely come back to the juniper because I think there's a lot of a lot of different yeah. directions to go with that. But yeah, but before we do that, I don't know, Christina, do you have any more? book follow-up questions like because you are allowed to have as many as you like so <laughs> um yeah so so that's your first book and I think that's really interesting but you recently wrote another book um if you want to talk a bit about that as well yeah this one's uh this one's encrypted it's in Norwegian <laughs> so you can't read it um, but it's it's my uh attempt to sort of uh give a portrait of Norwegian farmhouse ale, at, you know, on an academic level, really going mm. into it. So like this map with the dots, different names for the beer in different places. Um, we have, let's see, that's a bad one. How did people exchange Vos uh, yeast in the Voss oh. area? Wow. Each box is a person. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah, different methods for keeping the yeast, blah, 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 all, all everything in detail is really what I'm trying to do. And then uh, also trying to work out more of the history, why things are the way that they are and that sort of thing. But also, um, can you can you see Norwegian regions where that are similar to each other? Mm. And and of course, different from each other. And, and yeah, the really obvious conclusion was the Western and Eastern Norway were like two different countries. Oh, that's fascinating! Just a completely well, different uh, sort you, of approach. yeah. But if you if you see a if you see a map of Norway that has terrain on it, 
Right. There's like a there's like a huge chain of mountains running all the all the way from the south tip of Norway up to central Norway, and it can mm. you know many places it's hundred two hundred kilometers wide. Mm. Yeah. And and nobody lives up there because you can't. Right. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, nature doesn't want you to. So no, basically, and, yeah. Yeah. And Lars, how far back for our, for our listeners? How far back does your research go? Like, what sort of historical periods do you cover? Well, I my main focus is the period from which I can get detailed descriptions of the brewing, mm -hmm. and that in practice mm -hmm. that ends up being late eighteenth century up until you know today. Mm -hmm. Um. But I've I've tried to go as far back as I can. But of course, once you go further back than, than late eighteenth century, then you're on to guesswork, right. and yeah. you know little <laughs> bits of uh, archaeology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, that makes sense. So, but it, but it, but it's it. Uh, I feel that there is evidence you can find there that helps you understand why things are the way that they are today. Why you know why there are regional differences and all of these things. So. But I'm using that more as the background and not as the focus, I guess I should say. Yeah. No, because I know that there's evidence for hot rock brewing that dates back to like the Viking Age. So I know, archaeologically mm. speaking, so I know that that's a very long standing technique. So it's really interesting to see that you're sort of tracing it from the 18th century on and that this is still something that's yeah, very a continuity. much in use. Yeah. 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 Actually, this thing with the with the stone evidence is is interesting because... There is a particular type of, of heat-shattered stone that you find in the soil in Norway. You find it in you know huge thick layers on every farm. And there is actually documentary evidence where somebody asked a farmer 150 years ago, what is that? And he says, oh, that's brewing stones. It's from when they uh, didn't have metal kettles and they had new ah. stones. But they only go back to the seventh century. Only. As far as we know, at that point, yeah. we should have had 4,600 years of brewing. So, right. So where's the evidence? But it turns right. out there's another type of stones that go even further back, but they don't go far enough. So oh, okay. we have 3,000 years of probable brewing where we really don't know what was going on. Yeah, and you probably have some, you know, 19th or even early 20th century archaeological reports where people are taking notes but didn't know what they were looking at. So it it may be buried somewhere in an old site report. So could be. Um, we we actually have uh, we actually have descriptions of people doing uh, stone brewing in Norway, uh, all of them from a pretty small region in the country, which is quite interesting. Um, but that was published by people who had no real knowledge of beer brewing and also none of archaeology. Right. So yeah. that's that's yeah. that is reports that really, <laughs> you know, the significance of those reports really only uh, was appreciated quite recently. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about before on the podcast how we we need to get Marin Dinley on because when you have someone who understands both the brewing and the archaeology and can look at those things and say, "Oh, that we recognize what's going on." I think it like you say, it absolutely can unlock a lot of things that that yeah. maybe would be obvious if just the right person looked at it. So yes, and, and yeah, Lars, like there's get... sorry. No, you're grand. I was just going to say before we get too far in advance, can mm -hmm. you describe to everyone exactly what stone brewing would look like or a version mm -hmm. of it, just so people understand if they're not familiar? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good clarification. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the starting point for this is that metal used to be historically extremely expensive mm. to, to the point that uh, not too long ago, anything made of metal was considered to be semi-magical. Right. So the reason the reason that uh, a lot of you know farm doors of these big metal bands is that's magical protection. That's what Ooh, it's really oh, for. And that's also why yeah. people would hang uh, horseshoes over the door. It's nothing to do with good luck. It's to ward off evil. But again, it's because uh, metal is uh, uh, considered magical. And this meant that they didn't have kettles. Like, uh, the price of a kettle was just completely astronomical sure. uh, back in the Middle Ages. So then you have to brew without the kettle and your brewing vessels are of wood. Do you now place them over the fire? Maybe not. Right. <laughs> they won't but last have, very long. But you yeah. have to heat the mash. If you don't right. heat the mash, there isn't going to be any beer. 
So what do you do? Well, you take a wooden vessel, fill it with cold water and malt, and you dump hot stones in it, and you heat it up that way. That's stone brewing, basically. Yeah, and, and again, there was I feel like there was this mini trend, again, trend is the wrong mm. word, very briefly, where people got very excited about it. But again, I felt like it was at such a, a, a remove, if you like, and it was maybe inspired by one or two outliers if you like versus kind of this longer standing tradition you're you're speaking about so well I, th yeah. I think a lot of that was inspired by uh michael jackson's report on steinbeer oh um, which I bet, has, I bet which has right. confused yeah. people no end because <laughs> uh, he visited this brewery in franconia right where there's absolutely no evidence that there ever was stone brewing although of course there must have been right um and and they were brewing with hot stones and they had uh they had heard interview tapes with a commercial stone beer brewer brewing the the stein beer um and they were sh they were showing that they were dumping the stones in the warp to boil it oh, which is not what okay. i just described right 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 somebody who has no kettle like why would they boil there's no point how, yeah how, exactly how did that happen it's, yeah <laughs> it's just a waste of effort and and but and yeah. what about the real problem making the mash so but what happened was uh stein beer came from austria uh, a region called Carinthia is bordering uh, Italy. And they really did hear tapes of a real brewery from a brewery that closed in 1917 uh, in, the, in the town of Klagenfurt. But they ignored everything that the tape said. They just <laughs> did their own thing. Of course, Michael Jackson didn't know this. How could he? Right, right. He just showed what they were doing. But uh, um, right. I think a lot of people have, have gone with the yes, the stones go in the warp because that's what Michael Jackson showed on TV. And right, right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah, so just slightly lost in translation, briefly. Well, I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, he reported everything that he saw accurately. It's just these guys decided right. they wanted to do it a different way, which, you know, you want to you invent your own Franconian Steinbeer tradition? That's fine, right. I guess. No real yeah. problem. Yeah. It's only <laughs> when, when, you, when people go, this is what Stonebeer was like historically. That's like, uh, no, that's yeah. not right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we tried something, or you know, they tried something here in Ireland with the Philadelphia yeah. beer and the and the Moore Group, which is a absolutely yeah. fascinating um, study, and we will link that in the show notes for everyone that wants to read about it. Um, but they did an amazing, you know, experimental brew, um, trying to use um, stones here from, from, you know a technique that they believe might have existed in Iron Age or, or older. Right. Um, so yeah, we'll link that so you so you can all, but it, it is slightly controversial um, <laughs> for sure. Um, hmm. So we'll link that in the show notes. But yes, stone brewing is is absolutely something um, that's popped up here in, in our um, in Irish native brewing practices hmm. as well. Um, not without controversy though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like you say, there probably was something of the sort going on in, in that period for, for the same reasons. I mean, you know, metal is very expensive, you yeah. know, all of these things. So the, the, there was brewing before the Bronze Age. I don't think exactly. they had kettles. Right, exactly. Yeah, they weren't, you know, hauling around. Uh, well, exactly. They just didn't have those kettles. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you brought up something really interesting, uh, Lars, when you introduced your your the beer that you're drinking, you, you said it, it's a raw ale. And can you explain mm -hmm. to people what a raw ale is and how this sort of links in with what we're talking about right now? Yeah, that's that's a really good one, because um, a raw ale is just a beer where the wort hasn't been boiled. It's not mm -hmm. the style. It's kind of like sour is not the style because there's many right. different kinds of sour, right? Um but uh, raw ale is really, really common in, in farmhouse ale. Uh, I think of the people who are still brewing uh, farmhouse ale today, I would say that more than half don't boil the wort. How um, interesting, yeah. It, it, it wasn't that unusual in commercial brewing either, if you go further back. Like Berliner Weisse was originally not boiled. Hmm. Um, and probably more styles if you go further mm -hmm. back. But... Uh, the as Christina is hinting at the the connection mm -hmm. here is uh, a lot of these farmhouse brewers when they get a kettle they go oh nice much easier to mash now but they don't start boiling right they, they never boiled and and just because they get a kettle they don't start doing yeah that. why start now yeah it's more fuel well, yeah, and, and, yeah. and also it changes uh, it changes actually the flavor of your beer quite substantially mm, no that makes sense yeah so it is actually quite a big tr transition and, and, you know, it takes time. Yeah. 
And uh, in fact, one of the one of the challenges for farmhouse brewer is uh, to cool the wort. You usually have 150 liters. Uh, it's in a big wooden vessel. Cooling it down is really really slow business. Right. And if you uh, if you skip the boil, you start from say 65 degrees instead of 100. Right. Sure. So they're, they're, the time savings are much larger than they might seem. And of course, when they're boiling, they're doing it by feeding this fire with uh, with firewood. It's not like right. you just turn on the electricity and you yeah. wait. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I was just thinking about that because uh, I know we have up at Canvas Brewery, we have one brewery in Ireland where does that, you know, fire, like literal wood fired mm -hmm. uh, kettle. And again, it's a proper kettle, but, but like you say, that takes a long time to get up to that, you know the temperatures you would need so or i guess maybe maybe need is the wrong word are used to but i guess if you're yeah. if you have a different technique you don't have to spend that well not just that time but the the expense of the, the wood yeah so yeah, yeah. there's an economic Absolutely. impact as well yeah definitely but I, I think mostly it's a question of, for them i think it was mostly that the impulse to boil didn't reach them mm -hmm. oh, this 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 region where uh the style of brewing comes from is kind of there's like a barrier of mountains around the whole area. Oh, so they were <laughs> they were slow to take up other things as well. Um, for example, when they made cheese, they didn't boil the milk either. Oh, well, so there's a whole sort of tradition of just yes. a lot of different things. They just didn't do it. That's interesting. Oh, wow. But I suppose if you don't need to, why would you? You know, like yeah. it, it's it's something yeah. that I know Martin Cornell has talked about in in the UK, and it's something I've found in Ireland as well. Like, why would you spend the money on the fuel, or like you're saying, you know, having to cool it down? It just without the inclusion of something like hops, where you need yes. in particular to get to that, you need that boil. Yes. Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's another good point because. Um... Uh, that's one of the things that makes this not taste like a modern beer, uh, that the IBU is so incredibly low. The, uh, you know, a normal beer has, has like a backbone of hop bitterness that's kind of mm. almost the flavor is built around. And and in these beers, it's just missing. They don't, ha they don't have it. Or if they have bitterness, it's usually from the, from the juniper. So it's a, it's a different bitterness flavor. And right. so that's another, you know, hops are a new introduction into beer. And, right. and in a lot of farmhouse ales, it hasn't really broken through completely. For them, it's almost like it's something that they add, they're adding to prevent infection. They don't really care about the flavor of it. That's interesting. So I know you've mentioned the juniper a couple of times, and I think we need to, you know, let's talk mm. about juniper. So we, I know it comes in you know, a couple of different places potentially. So I guess maybe... What does it look like? And are we just talking about sort of stirring with, you know, sort of juniper? Or like you say, you've got a sort of actual bowl for drinking that's uh, potentially juniper. What is that? Uh, how does it? Right. How does juniper fit in? Because it's okay, clearly an so, element throughout. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a long story. Let's start with what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a conifer tree that usually uh, just grows as a low bush. Uh, but if it gets the right conditions, it can shoot up and be 20 meters tall. Um, it's actually uh, of all the all the trees in the world. This is the species that has the widest distribution of any. Uh, it's super oh. adaptable. It grows all the way south to Croatia and Europe, uh, all the way across Siberia and even across North America. Um, the way that it, there are two ways that it's used. So one way is that when you filter the wort out of the mash, uh, you put juniper branches in the bottom. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And and since it, they spend a long time in in hot liquid this way because the 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 lautering takes a long time, right? When you do it this way, uh, so you get quite a lot of flavor that way. But particularly in Norway, they don't think that is enough, so <laughs> they don't brew with water. They brew with juniper infusion. So you put juniper oh. branches in in okay. in the kettle in water. You heat it up, and you make a. It can be like a pale green tea or it can be dark brown, depending on how you treat it. Mm-hmm. So this adds, you know, this adds bitterness and you get uh, woody, resinous uh, kinds of flavors. Really, uh, you know, people like to say it's like pine and yeah, it's a little bit like pine, but it, I mean, it tastes like juniper is what it tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to get, you just have to get to know the flavor, but right. um what, what I think a lot of people have missed out on is the fact that of all the spices that have been used in beer, this has to count as number two, mm. historically. So oh, fascinating. there is evidence of juniper use uh, going back to 800 before Christ in Denmark. Uh, oh, that's great. There would be there would be a lot more evidence if it, if it weren't for the fact that a lot of the analysis of you know, dried up beer from archaeology Right. Uh, are done by looking at pollen grains. And juniper pollen is not ah. stable. Oh, so interesting. So if it was okay. there, you wouldn't find it. Right. Oh. So the, yeah. the ones the ones that they found was when they did uh, chemical analysis and they found um, uh, substances that are pe- peculiar to juniper and they're like, oh, okay, it must be juniper. Uh, but it has been used or it has been common to use it in the beer in, let's see, Norway, Sweden, Finland, the three Baltic countries yeah. in Russia, also in the Steinbeer in Austria. It has been used in Germany, but it wasn't common. Uh, has also been used in Denmark, but it wasn't common. Uh, so actually the places where there's evidence for farmhouse brewing in, in some detail and you don't find juniper are two countries where there isn't a lot of juniper. That's Denmark and the UK. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so it's just, it's it's almost purely... It's not there, so they don't use it. So. Yeah, that's what it seems yeah. like. Yeah, because yeah, I, I, I can remember again when the when the big sort of salty craze happened in kind of in, in North America, it was very like they just threw a lot of juniper in everything. And maybe sometimes that worked and sometimes it was a little unbalanced. But I, I, I feel like they almost sort of just kind of cribbed some notes, but maybe didn't go all the way into what one of these yeah. might have looked like. They just kind of were I- like, well, we want that flavor. Yeah. I think I think at that time um, it would have been difficult because mm. juniper is a bit of a tricky ingredient. It matters what the plant looks like, or, and it matters which part of it you use, and then it matters how you treat it. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, like a classic mistake that I made was, <laughs> uh, you know, just cut some juniper, fairly thick branches, throw them in, boil them, and your beer tastes of cleaning fluid. <laughs> it's like yeah, just no, borderline <laughs> drinkable at all uh, and and the yeah. mistake was thick branches and and too much heat mm. 
So we, uh, I was, I was on Gotland to to see the Swedish Gotlandsdrikke just mm. last fall, and with me was a was a very experienced sahte brewer and an American brewer, Matt Becker, who is um, he's brewed a lot of uh, Scandinavian farmhouse ales because he's interested in it. And we see this Swedish brewer take these juniper branches and you know throw them in and and boil them, and we're all three of us are like, hey, are you quite what? And then we. And then we're, we're like we're talking like, why is oh, this doesn't make sense, right? And 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 the beer has to be ruined. And I go, well, why don't we just taste the infusion? And it's fine. There's no problem. Oh I'm wow. Like, yeah, but then <laughs> how? We still right? don't know. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's funny. So uh, so what I'm getting at is, you know, if you if you you're using hops in your beer, you know how to do it, right? This ingredient is also tricky, but, and and a lot of us don't know how to use it. Right. Yeah. And I know, Christina, you recently made a historic beer by doing some sort of, if you like, teas infusions to sort of see where that would go. Mm. So something along those lines. Yeah, we did. We um we brewed. Uh, I did a collaboration brew with Closet Brewing Project, or their Closet Brewing just now. Um in Edinburgh for my book launch, um, based off of a recipe from 16th century, I think, off the top of my head. And we did different um, sort of teas just to taste the mm. infusions because uh, we weren't familiar. We used um, yarrow and um, bog myrtle and um, some other things. And we opted not to use the bog myrtle in, in the final product. Um, mm. But we did that because we tasted the teas and figured out how to scale up and, and that kind of thing. Because again, like Yarrow has uh, quite a strong sort of sagey flavor and it can take over. Yeah. So we, we kind of did a, a, a somewhat similar thing, though I don't think they're quite as perhaps um, finicky as, as Juniper might be. Right. Um, but those two, by the way, yeah. <laughs> those two, by the way, are also uh, farmhouse brewing herbs. They they show up in the evidence, especially bog myrtle. That's that's kind of why we use them um, well, yeah. for the historical historical reasons. Um, and then there were some, oh, meadow sweet was another one um, yes, that yes. we looked at um, because there was a there was a burial in North Mains in Scotland from the Bronze Age that had. Um, uh, malt it looked like malt or grain based possibly yeah. alcohol product that had was had meadow sweet in it um but yeah so that's interesting that it's also in farmhouse ales so yeah, yeah med meadow meadow sweet is a living tradition yeah it's not historical it's still going right on. yeah it's still happening there's there is one brewer in Vos who learned to use it from his uh, father-in-law uh but his father-in-law said that you, you can't actually use it in the beer. What he does is he takes the flowers and he rubs the inside of the fermenter with it, and then he throws oh, them away. And that's but that's enough to flavor the beer. And his his father in law used to say that if you use more than that, your beer will taste of soap. <laughs> I mean that sounds uh, even want... more fierce yeah. in, in the local dialect. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Oh, I, I love that. So actually, this this talk of ingredients too once me makes me want to sort of get onto to the yeast because I know there's a mm -hmm. this is very you know very particular if you like like you're not just well I'm sure sometimes you are but I guess you're not just sort of going to white labs and getting whatever but I and again I know some people are trying to sort of take yeasts that'll kind of go in this direction if you like but but tell us about how the yeasts tend to work in in kind of in this space. Yeah. So. Uh, here in Norway, to take one example, you couldn't really buy yeast until the 1870s. Right. Uh, that's when they started importing uh, factory-made yeast. It was possible, you know, if you lived in a town, to go to some sort of brewery and get yeast. But for most people, this was impossible. Right. You had to maintain your own. because, uh, And the reason you had to is... You know, if you're making sourdough, you can just get the yeast from from flour, right? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't matter what yeast you use, really. It just has to make CO2. But for beer, you have to have really particular yeast to get a good result. So you so you have basically you had to maintain it yourself, and everybody did. Right. So that's uh, in fact what is on the can. 
Oh, <laughs> it's a yeast <laughs> ring. Uh, so, so a device that was used for keeping yeast between brews. And oh, I, that's amazing. Okay. I shouldn't mislead you now. These were quite rare. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> A much simpler version would be, uh, you know, just a wooden log mm -hmm. or even a ring of straw. Or in fact, the most common in Norway was uh, pieces of cloth. You just dip them in the yeast, it sinks into it and you hang them up to dry. So the reason this works is uh, when you add yeast to the beer, it multiplies. You get more yeast than you added. So when you so a brewer always has a surplus of yeast, you always have more than you can use. Mm -hmm. so you can keep going forever you just take it from the previous beer put it into the next and that's it right and of course sometimes it goes wrong and that's right. when you go to your neighbor and and you get good yeast from them but it, uh, <laughs> it sounds really simple and it is very simple but uh it turns out you have to do it exactly right uh, <laughs> if you treat the yeast yeah. like a normal, like a modern brewer does, it's going to go sour within a couple of mm. brews, for the most part. Um, and uh, the other thing about this is that the way the people were treating these yeasts, and now I'm talking about farmhouse brewing from you know Orkney Islands to the Ural Mountains, uh, northern Norway down to. Uh, who knows, somewhere in Germany at least. Um, mm -hmm. They were all treating them in ways that are different from how modern yeast was used. So fermentation was much hotter at body mm. temperature, which is, oh wow, you know, insane for a modern brewer. Um, very, very fast fermentations. Like you would harvest the yeast like the day after or two days after. Um, and the fact that not always, but but a lot of the time they would dry the yeast. And most modern beer yeast can't be dried; it dies. Right. So oh, sure, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Huh. So it it really looks like all of these brewers, and you know, farmhouse brewers in Suffolk or Orkney Islands or Wales, uh, Denmark, Poland, wherever you like, it looks like all of them use the type of yeast that's different from modern yeast or types of yeast. I mean, it could be many types. Who knows? Wow, so there's a big project out there for someone who was uh, like a, a yeast sort of chemist to go and do that, do that work potentially. So we're, PhD we're, for do, someone. we're doing that yeah. work. So oh, great, awesome. Yeah, yeah so my my next meeting with uh, microbiologists is Friday morning. Oh, wonderful. Okay, we love to hear it. <laughs> That's really exciting. <laughs> yes, yeah. So there's uh, there is some very good work coming with. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's their research, so I can't really say what they found right. until they published it. But um, the yeast that was used in this, which is called Kvaik, right, is is yeast that people have been reusing in Western Norway for many centuries. They still have it, and and you know when you test it genetically, it's like yes, it's clearly different from modern beer yeast. Um, and it has exactly the properties that when you, you know, if you look at archive documentation of how they were using it, turns out, yes, it can be dried. Uh, yes, it likes hot temperatures and yes, it's super fast at fermenting. So I, I guess it may be the obvious question is when we see like a, a modern, say a modern craft beer from essentially anywhere where they, they have, they're where they're using it, what they're calling a Quebec yeast, are mm -hmm. they the same or well, I guess where, I, I, I guess is there a flavor profile that maybe they're insinuating, if if you like, when we see that, or is it something almost completely different that they're using? No, no, they are they are actually using real quite yeast. So oh, okay. when when I started uh, collecting these yeasts, I was a little bit desperate because the brewing didn't <laughs> seem like it was very healthy, and if okay. they didn't keep brewing, the yeast was going to die. Right. So I thought I have to get people to use this. So I sent it to to you know commercial yeast labs where I could basically to get them to um, commercialize it so they would be uh, and, it, and it's really become quite popular I mean it's it's really it's being produced over much of the world and it's it's if you go on to untapped and you type yeah. like, there's like 4,000 hits yeah yeah and I guess that's why I'm slightly almost like dubious is the wrong but I'm like but is it the same or are they just kind of hopping on a bandwagon uh, well so. there are differences so if you go to a farmhouse brewer and you get dried chips, yeah, in there will be a large number of different strains. Sure. Uh, oh, okay. 
And the number that you find depends a little bit on you know which brewery you go to, but also uh, how good your methods for finding strains are. Right. So some labs will say, yeah, there's two strains in here. And then Carlsberg will look at the same thing and they'll say, well, <laughs> we found 45. Right. This isn't really something that you can, you know, uh, count with any, it's like counting different colors. Are these right. two colors the same or different? Mm. Yeah, well, depends, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when you buy commercial yeast, you get one strain. Right. They're using the full the full set, and you can not not with all of these, but with some of them, you can definitely taste the difference. Um, and you can also see differences in behavior. Quite a few yeast strains have the property that if you use them alone, when the beer is finished fermenting, they don't clump up and drop out. They need oh. other strains that are different from themselves to to do this. And I'm, I'm sure there's similar things happening during fermentation as well, but we just don't know about it because nobody studied it. Right. Um, yeah. So so there are differences, but when they say they're using quake, it's true. They are. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I had no idea there are so many different <laughs> varieties, but I guess that's there are so many different types of every yeast these days, I suppose. So. Well, that's that. If you look at you know how many different. Uh, modern commercial beer yeasts there are there's not a huge number of lager yeast there's a very small number yeah, yeah oh that's true yeah 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 and and the commercial yeast i think the um you know the, the big gallo net all study in 2016 had something like 100 150 commercial yeah. yeast strains but uh the belgians who who looked at quake analyzed i think 28 oh, cultures wow. and they have 280 different strains oh my goodness wow yeah and they still <laughs> haven't looked at all the cultures right so sure. yeah and uh, oh yeah i wanted to say that there was a norwegian brewery that took quake from one brewer uh and yeah they worked with somebody who broke it into strains and then they skipped the ones that the, there were the most of and they picked three of the rare ones and they brewed the same beer with those three different strains and they were they were really different from each other. You could, oh, there was wow. no difficulty that's, telling them apart. That's so cool. Super interesting project. It's it's a real shame yeah. that they just made it once and now it's gone. Oh yeah, no that that would be so interesting to repeat and maybe do it under different conditions and yes, see absolutely. what you got. But fascinating. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah, and, so and Christina, cool. you, you may want to jump in on this one as well. But so, so back to kind of the 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 wooden bowl and so on. I'm thinking kind of the material culture, if you like, around this kind of brewing because there's obviously both the brewing and kind of the, the serving mm -hmm. of it if you like so oh, yeah. i have i have many questions and i'm sure christina does as well so <laughs> yeah that is uh that is an absolutely gigantic subject if yeah. you want to go into the culture around <laughs> it uh, because it, it touches almost every side of, of peasant culture yeah well even just something like you said this yeast strainer which might not be very common but just the fact that something like that exists is fascinating and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know said yeah, something so about that so yeah let me show you some pictures um this is a farmhouse drinking vessel oh wow christina do you want to describe that to the, the folks at home that's amazing <laughs> you're like lost for words <laughs> no she's muted sorry i'm on mute because my i'm so sorry i'm on mute because my dog is barking um it is it's a a bird is it a duck um looks like a duck and yeah yeah and it's really colorful it's yellow and green and red feathers and like the bowl part is like the back of the duck with its little tail feathers it's so cute that's amazing it's very yeah, cool there's... This is a book of, um, yeah, it's all the oh, chicken. Wow. Chicken one. <laughs> yeah, That's amazing. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, you get the idea. Wow. And this, yeah. and this is, uh, this is one type of Norwegian beer bowl. And then we, I could show you like 10 more books. Wow. I, I feel, okay. I feel like there's a purchase in my future. I feel, I feel like, you know, my, my not very okay. good Danish is good enough to at least read that Norwegian, oh, yeah. maybe. So yeah, probably yeah. Uh, uh, want, when you read it, when you read it, Danish and Norwegian is almost the same. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we'll get there. I, I guess it's just like beer 
horn, if, if you like, more or less, or beer vessel, more or less, uh, if you translate it into English. But uh, wow, those are um, amazing. And I, I think, you know, again, for anyone who, who, like me, you know, went and did a lot of archaeology grad school and saw a lot of sort of libation chambers and drinking vessels like okay those are mm -hmm. fine like your greek ones are fine those are cool though like that's <laughs> that's like next level stuff it's so that's colorful great. and uh but i love the animal shapes that's so interesting and so many birds that's uh, well I, uh, I... this this book is called um uh, beer hens that's oh it's beer hens oh wow so that's uh, so a very specific. If I get a different yeah. book, you get um, <gasps> you get the ones that have horse head handles. Oh my gosh! Okay, it's like I'm here for and, that. Yeah, yeah, we can we can carry on. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> typologies. Totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs> are there yeah. are there modern artisans? Are there people who make these now? Like, yeah, yeah, say, are. if I was like, oh, I want to buy one of these. Is there are there people? There are people making them now. Yeah, uh, it's kind. You, uh, if you want to buy, typically it's easier to find an antique one. Mm. Um, so the people who make them now mostly make them for themselves. Okay. Yeah. The the last Fair time enough. I was in uh, I was in Vos, they served us their own horn brew, you know, in Schenge, and one of the guys he'd made the one that he was serving us in. Actually, he'd made three different ones, and um, there is a uh, it's called West uh, Cultural Academy of Western Norway. They actually do courses in in carving these, like every two or three. Oh, years. that's amazing! Oh, wow. Okay, okay. Christina is making this amazing oh, face. Up. People at home, <laughs> sign me up. I'm going. Three years yeah. from now, that's where I will be. If that's when they're having it, I'm going. That's is so cool. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, we clearly need to do a deep dive on those separately. But but just tell us about your wooden bowl, and because again, it's just beautiful and. Um, yeah, you mean yeah. this one? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. the one you're using now. And I know you said you have an even more sort of historic one, but uh... well, um, I have uh, this one is made commercially for the same brewery that made the beer. Oh, okay, and, very and good. The, the reason they did that is, you're this is what you're meant to drink the beer from. It's made to right. be drunk from these. That's um, beautiful. Yeah, and it's also, you know, if you. Uh, Think think of wine ceremony when you're serving the wine, right? It's a really important part of driving home the point that this is not just liquid, right? It's not water we're drinking. And if you want people to, you know, sit up and take notice of your beer, make them drink it from this. Oh, here, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Folks, get get yeah. your drinking bowls. We we're here so, for it. So but yeah. the, the one I have in the other room, um, according to my dad, uh, it was probably painted by my grandma. Oh wow! Uh, so cool. It was it was probably made in a workshop in in the town where he grew up, and and she probably then bought it without paint, but because she was in, into the um, there's a particular style of decoration that's called urusemaling, uh, rose paint. Uh, it's really f uh, twisted floral shapes that sort of tie into each other, um, and and this is painted in that style, which which was very common. Um, yeah, so. You could do typologies of these shapes that they draw. <laughs> uh, and then um, there's poems around the rims of the bowls. And so that's oh, a my whole history genre of its own. So, I mean, I have a whole library of books just on bowls. So cool. Oh, my gosh. Here for it. Yeah. I, Thank you for sharing. Those are yeah, really cool. That's amazing. And, and again, I feel like we could dive into that and talk about just that for, for hours. But I know we're, we're yes. coming up on, on time because uh, we want to make sure you can get to bed and, and everyone else as well. But are there any big myths you feel like we should be busting ab about Norwegian farmhouse sales? What's the what's the one thing people think they know that's just wrong? Well, uh, we did a few on the way. And um, I think actually uh, the thing I would like to draw attention to uh, and that I, that I try to do in this book is, you know, um, this photo is from, from Russia. Uh, there's farmhouse brewing going on in, in Russia, in Belarus. It's not just Norway, right? The mm, Baltics, mm -hmm. Finland. There's people still brewing in Denmark and, and other places that you would be surprised to hear that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like you said, it's a living tradition. It's not something that's... You know, it's, not, it's, of, it's not historical yeah. or, you know, 
this beer is historical in the same way as porter is historical mm. Mm. that's a right? great way historical to say, comes yeah. from the from, uh, porter comes from the 18th century who knows when this comes from but you know they're equally historical as far as i'm concerned I, I i really dislike that the the bjcp put the farmhouse uh styles under historical yeah, well, I think we all have various issues with how these things get yes, <laughs> sort of categorized yes. and shaped. But, but it's also yeah. also the the, the the focus on Norway. I mean, I am Norwegian. I tend to talk yeah. about the Norwegian beers the most because it's closest to me and I know the most about them. Yeah. But the other ones are equally interesting. You know, go to Lithuania, go to Estonia. Don't go to Russia. <laughs> Maybe not right now, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. have to see if I can find some when uh, when we go to Denmark and Sweden for Eurovision. I'm sorry, we have to mention it every episode because you know it's <laughs> okay. it's our it's our fault. But you know, so yeah. we'll see what we can but, seek uh, out. You won't yeah. you won't find any in Denmark, unfortunately, un un uh, unless well. unless you do a one and a half dry hour drive out of Copenhagen, you won't get any. Yeah, no, even going to Odense a lot, it was all just your typical, you know. Carlsberg and friends out there, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 the the brewing and and um, I'm actually right now trying to find brewers to visit in March. And uh, you know, first person I look up when I Google his name, I find the person responsible for his estate. So he's he's dead. Oh no! I yeah. got I got his phone number five years ago, and googling a little further, I found the death notice. He died in January this year. Oh no! Oh, so sad. And then um, I. Through another person, I got hold of two ladies who uh, who know brewing. They're ninety and ninety four years old. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah. So, and then we found one guy who is who's not old. So we're gonna <laughs> gonna visit him as well. Oh well, well, best of luck in in that. So I don't know, Christina, any closing questions before yes. we? Yes. Go for uh, it. Not question, but I, I do want to mention that Lars and myself and um, actually Moss from um, the brewery in Tipperary. From um, Canvas, name. yes. There we go. Sorry, <laughs> Soros. Um, we're on the Bjor podcast um, a couple years ago, wasn't it, Lars? Talking about Lithuanian farmhouse brewing. You were talking about it. I was asking questions. It was on the Bjor Fest podcast. Um, and I was asking questions and you all were experts um, and it was uh, yourself and Simonas. Oh, um, now I, yeah, I couldn't recognize what you were saying, but yes, yes, yes. Yes. Uh, um, yes. The Irish one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, it was yes. the yeah, Fest. So we'll link that in the show notes, friends, as well, because yeah, if you yeah. want to learn about farmhouse brewing in a different um in a different place in in lithuania which lars is also an expert in um i do highly recommend that podcast it was fascinating i knew very little about um lithuanian farmhouse brewing so i was just happy to be there and ask questions um <laughs> and just learned so much from everyone um and uh fell in love with with the with the brewing and 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 everything i learned um absolutely will link that Highly, highly recommended. Um, and they had Simonas from the Dundalus, Dundalus yeah. um, Brewery on, um, which was absolutely just, it was just incredible. So we will link that as well. Um, yeah, so yeah, you, you all can learn a bit about Lithuanian brewing as well. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lars. I think, I think with that, I'm going to end on, I have learned that there are ale hens and that that's yes. a thing that exists in the world. And <laughs> yep. I need to find out more about them. But I think we've only scratched the surface. We could clearly dive into each of these things, you know, on, on a much deeper level. So we might have to do a part two sometime. But mm -hmm. for now, Lars, thank you so much. Christina, thank you as always. And folks at home, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of Lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life, and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 